what if, what the if, we all lived within our own secure enclave? And Dan replied, I have no idea what that means, but it sounds cool. Smile. (laughs) So here we go. Welcome to What the If. Philip Shane here. Identify, I identify as a documentary filmmaker. It's one of the labels I'm willing to put on myself. And with me, as always, fearless leader, uh, professor of history of science. Yeah. I, I prefer to lead from the rear, however, so I don't know if that makes me fearless or not. <laughs> <laughs> yes, in the horse costume that is the two people of what the if <laughs> i guess that's right we're actually in a pantomime horse right now you can't see it of course because that's right. it's a podcast but right you can't see happen. it because it's snuffleupagus Deep oh cut. i would totally wear a snuffleupagus <laughs> costume yeah. very exciting very exciting show coming up i mean all our shows are exciting but this one is especially so also for me personally very very special guest who i will introduce in a moment also we if you're a longtime listener, you know that uh, anytime we use an idea that was submitted by one of you audience members who we call ifers, if your idea gets chosen, you become raised to super iffer level and you receive a free finger puppet. Oh, yes. Of a scientist, scientist or science fiction character from the Unemployed Philosophers Guild. So we've had them as longtime partners. They just love our audience. And we pass those on to you. We have a brand new, amazing artist, science lover, art lover, designer who's on board, who's going, and and our special guest today is going to be the first to receive one of these special gifts. If that's not enough teasing for you, I don't know what is. Yeah, you should just sign off right now if that's not enough teasing for you. (laughs) (laughs) Let me actually... Okay, See, speaking of super teasing, a two-minute mailbag here. I just want to oh. throw in, we got some amazing things. Fire up the mailbag. Dangling left on Twitter tweets and says the uh, last week's episode, the Galactic Mailbag episode was out of this world. Ha! Huh. Seriously, it sounds like you're both having fun, and it was a pleasure listening. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Dangling left, and Good luck with that, unless that's a choice to dangle left. Lastly, uh, from Bob Steele, a new listener. He just simply tweeted out, highly recommend the What the If Geek Science podcast. Just pick any episode. I was instantly hooked. Wow, nice. That was very nice. Sorry, well, and one more, a bonus. Just one one more thing. Diedrich Ellifson tweeted... I've been absolutely hooked on your podcast for the last few weeks. And after the Dummies vs. Gravity episode, I started making a, a lengthy prog rock epic named The Refutation <laughs> of the Aristotelian Definition. Whoa. What is prog rock? I am not the person to ask. 
exactly. You, dude, you live in Williamsburg. How can you not know what prog rock is? Is Hamilton prog rock? I don't know. We'll find out. Maybe our guest, <laughs> maybe our guest knows. Let me introduce a very special guest. And I'm going to begin by saying, hi, Dan. <laughs> hi, Philip. And it's Dan Morin. I say that because that's how you're introduced on your podcast with Jason Snell. Which one is that called even? I don't... That is the Six Color Secret Subscriber Podcast, for lack of a better name. So-called because it started as a podcast for subscribers of our website, Six Colors. And I guess it's sort of a secret. Like, you can't find it in iTunes. If you're a member, you get, like, the the link. You know, you're, you're blessed. You're in the know. So... Yeah, I guess that it's become the Six Color Secret subscriber podcast. So it's a little bit of a mouthful. I like it. Though. Yeah, I forget. right. So I'm a longtime contributor and a proud member of the Secret Society. We are delighted to have you. <laughs> you are also, and this makes me doubly, triply excited. I didn't actually know this until you and Jason started talking about this, that you are a science fiction writer. That is true. Yes. It always surprises me when people like, I feel like I talk too much about it and I get worried that I like overhype it. I was like, I should just like tone it down a bit. And then people are like, oh, I didn't know that you write science fiction books. I was like, maybe I'm not doing enough. That's maybe that's the problem. Yeah. Green yes, light uh, to talk about your stuff. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. I appreciate it. There's no subject I like better. Yeah. I'm a science fiction author. My second book, The Bayern Agenda, just came out in March from Angry Robot. My first book was The Caledonian Gambit, which came out back in 2017. And they are both sort of science fiction spy stories that take place in a galaxy divided by a Cold War. So fusing my love of Cold War espionage with my love of science fiction mm. and turning them into one delightful whole. <laughs> That's awesome. Yes, and I, I have read The Bayern Agenda, and it was awesome. It was. Thank it you. began exciting, and it got more, even more exciting as it went on. <laughs> so we got we Perfect. ramp it up. We do not let go. That's how it works. It was cool, and uh, it has great characters in it. You know, and great humor. Humor you can definitely find in science fiction, but great characters and humor that's not common. So those are, those are really well done. I felt. Thank you very much. I. I... Despite being a lifelong fan of science fiction and obviously science being such an operant part of that and obviously something you guys talk about a lot, for me, uh, a lot of stories live and die by their characters. There oh, are definitely, definitely yeah. yeah, science fiction stories you can read that are really heavy on the science and it's great, but you get kind of like, well, where's this going? Like, what's the plot? You know, where are the characters? Like, you know, I, I'm a big fan. I, I really like the works of Isaac Asimov. But I would argue that Foundation is an incredibly dull book because nothing yep. <laughs> happens. There's really no characters in it. And so, you know, not that he couldn't write characters. He did it plenty fine in many of his other works, but for whatever reason. Yeah, so I, I love to focus on character-driven stuff. And humor is also a big part of it. It's not necessarily, you know, your Douglas Adams slapstick a minute type stuff, which I, I also adore. But it's sort of more, again, more character-inflected humor moments and situational humor. But I, I like to meld those things because I find it's hard to make anything work without at least a little bit of humor in it. For sure. For sure. And that's what we try to do, too. Yeah. <laughs> we just can't help it. We just can't help it. And, and one, of the reasons, one, uh, one of the reasons I'm excited to have you on as a science fiction writer is that you're actually, you are the first science fiction writer we have had on. Uh, I'm honored. I'm honored to be yeah, here. I, right. I'm still trying to figure out which part of the horse I am. Like, if you guys are in a two-person <laughs> costume, is there a 
Um, Where you're, am I? You're the writer. I'm the yeah, writer right. of the horror. Okay. All right. Yeah. Everybody fits in somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> you're the cowboy. Okay. And, uh, Excellent. Which means cool. you space have to. Ju- you have to. You see my space cowboy exactly. It means you have to jump off and tie up the heifer. Mm-hmm. That's right. They, whatever they do. But but the the my idea for this show uh, originally was comes from I, I have also dabbled in the science fiction arts unpublished, but I've studied writing for a very long time, um, which both for film I do documentaries, but also just uh, I enjoy writing. The process of writing science fiction kind of means part of it is you got to research some a what if in a way, and also then you have to learn a lot about this subject mm-hmm. and so that that's just where the idea came from I was like, oh well that's what yeah. sci- writing science fiction is like and so here we go for our what the if this week here it comes i'm going to read the tiny bit of correspondence dan and i had in <laughs> but you are going to you, you should know by the way everything we do here is fully improvised <laughs> Yeah, that's right. We have no clue what's happening at any given time. Yep. That's how I live my life. Yeah, exactly. Perfect. Here, here, you can actually be present at the moment of creation. Dan and I were on Slack, and I said, uh, what's something you think the public needs to know but is terribly ignorant about? And Dan said, well, that would almost be certain, certainly something encryption-related. Slightly smiling face. <laughs> <laughs> the transcript gives you... That's really it adds the color that it you're does. looking it for does. so much. Yeah. And I said, Yep. And I thought for a moment, and I know know Dan from this uh, Apple related technology magazine and podcast. And so I said, you know, Apple loves privacy, for instance, and I've always loved the phrase secure enclave, which is something Apple puts inside their iOS devices. Its own chip. Secure enclave. So what if what the if we all lived within our own secure enclave. And Dan replied, I have no idea what that means, but it sounds cool. Smile. <laughs> so here we go. What the if? We all lived in our own secure technological enclave. Not presumably just like a uh, like a like a fenced in sub development. <laughs> well, that is kind of what it sounds like. Yeah, it does. It does, doesn't it? That's true. Gated communities. Yes. So ha- all of Southern Florida is a <laughs> from the air. It just looks like a bunch of individual. What is the chip that is it the M M one or? Well, the secure enclave is actually generally part of the CPU, so it's ah. like a section of the CPU. But then again, CPUs these days are okay. so complicated that they have their little discrete co-processing things that are all like divvied up into handling specific tasks and stuff. So the secure enclave is one part of that. And they do have it in more recent, some of the recent Macs have it too. Right. And, and what, what is it? Yeah. What's secure about the secure enclave? Right. So the secure enclave, the idea behind it is you have, so your devices are secured with some form of encryption. So for example, if you have an iPhone that uses either a touch ID or face ID, 
you, all your information is sort of encrypted based on hardware keys that are unlocked by your biometrics or by your passcode. And so the question is, where do you store sort of the details, the keys used on the device to encrypt things? And the answer is inside the secure enclave. And the reason for that is because it cannot be accessed by hardware means, even like by any part of the OS that is not like very specifically tied to the authentication process. So anytime any app, for example, wants access to decrypt things, um, say you have like a password manager or something like that, it needs to go through the OS to request access and the OS can like intermediate to the secure enclave and say like, Okay, all right. Like we are, we are handling all the transaction. Essentially, we are the trusted, the trusted venue for providing that information. And we, otherwise, there's no way for any software to get to the secure enclave. All your stuff is held safe and secure, and nobody else can see it. Huh. Okay. I, I had just had an image that it, it's sort of like a celebrity, like in their dressing room. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's pretty good now. Yeah, like that. There are multiple layers of security that anyone needs to get through to visit that. Now, for everyone, the idea is basically there's a lot of talk these days, as there should be, about privacy versus openness, about security. And every day in the news, there's some other breach. It's always five hundred. It's always about five hundred thousand users. By the way, I'm not sure why. <laughs> nah, suspicious. Yeah, <laughs> half a million users, uh, passwords and and addresses and whatever were exposed. And so, what if there are, uh, for instance, the electronic? Uh, what is it? EFF electronic, electronic freedom foundation. freedom foundation. Yeah, and uh, other privacy advocates who call for more security. Even Facebook now is calling for more security. And so what if the whole world were this way in every aspect? So what if we wanted to live absolutely secure? Now, it's different from being, we could, the the easiest, well, not easy, but one thing you would do is just go off the grid. but, But not like that. We want to actually interact as much as possible, but we want to do it in a private, secure way. So what would... We can begin small. I uh, wake up in the morning, and the alarm clock goes off, and I'm using, for instance, my phone to be the clock, and I don't want that recorded in any way. Mm -hmm. I'm guessing that's already the case, (laughs) but we don't know. But, for instance, Google, there are all these things, Google, all, all kinds of things are actually already tracking us, right? Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly software and information collected about you, especially depending on what kind of devices you're using. So many of us, for example, I mean, uh, Apple is one thing we, you know, we are, we're kind of holding Apple up as this bastion of privacy. And they certainly try very hard at that. But there are certainly other smartphone vendors that are less concerned with protecting sure. your privacy and might very well know what time you woke up in the morning. And what you immediately started doing with your phone, checking your email, reading Twitter, etc. As soon as you as soon as you woke up, so not very private there. And then certainly, what I think about is interesting, especially when it comes to this kind of privacy stuff. Is these days so much of our homes have become increasingly technologified, to coin a word. So your you got your light bulbs, right? Your light bulbs. Might know. Oh, at at seven thirty, 
he turned on the lights in his bedroom. Mm-hmm. So he's probably up. All right. So when we're talking about preventing that from some preventing someone from knowing that information, we're trying to keep a shadowy corporation from writing down the number 730 somewhere. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, that's the, so that's that's the essence of it. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, okay. not having your shadowy corporation know, ah, it's 7.30, I can start sending ads to your phone for coffee because ah, I know okay. you're up All right. okay. and want to start drinking your coffee. In fact, I, I, would say, I would imagine now, it's. I feel like it must be almost trivial to know things like that. For instance, all someone would have to do is see, well, for instance, the, the device knows when you've moved it for the first time in eight hours. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Not to mention the microphone might even be hearing things. The screen wakes up, all that kind of stuff. And suddenly you start pulling down data. So it's obvious that you are now, you or somebody <laughs> or right. like you. is up and about. Yes. <laughs> well, it's an interesting question. And then I, I think oftentimes about the, like you said, the interaction with the device is sort of your first interesting clue because of that. And then certainly behaviors when you interact with that device. You know, there's a lot of stuff there's a lot of regulation, obviously, around privacy and around what you can and can't track. And there's certainly some agreements about things. But that's not to say there's not information that's gleaned from what might otherwise seem very innocuous. For example, if you... First thing you do, you open... Let's say you open Instagram. And you're like, oh, I'm just checking up on what people have posted. Put pictures. And you start scrolling through. And you're like, oh, it's a great picture. You know, you like the picture. Now, we know you're awake. We know you're reading Instagram. We know you tend to read Instagram probably right when you get up in the morning. And obviously all the other ancillary information about, well, you liked this photo of, maybe it's someone posting a picture of a cup of coffee. Ah, okay. Now now your algorithms and your machine learning and your machine vision can be like, oh, well, they like coffee. It's early. They like coffee. Now we can start thinking about how do we serve ads uh, in your stream. You might keep scrolling down. All of a sudden there's an ad for coffee. I see. So in an unprotected phone, just a generic one, let's say, how does the shadowy corporation get that number from your phone? The time, the time, the time. Yeah, I assume that it could be it depends. So if we're talking about the shadowy corporation that, say, makes your phone, then they could log that information on the device or they could transmit it to another source, depending again, on the type of manufacturer, right? Like if you've got somebody like, I'm going to pick on Google because they have so much stuff. But Google could easily say, oh, well, your alarm went off at 7.30. We have uh, information on that that we can transmit back to our servers and say, ah, we're starting to get a pattern, especially repeated over a lot of time. If we Mm -hmm. see like, oh, every Monday through Friday, they're getting up around 7.30. Then we can collect that information and sort of establish. Well, they get up at seven thirty on the week on the weekdays. Okay, so the the access they have is when they when they built the phone, they put in a little thing in the chip, knowing that they were going to want to get this information. Back yep, that's possible. Time, or right? or okay. even in the software itself, in the operating system. Okay. All right. Um, so are these things that so the hardware? One would be they would have to have decided they want to do this when they build a phone and before you buy it. But for the software one, is this something they could like include in a software update? So some executive at Shadowy Corporation says, you know, I would like to know when Philip gets his coffee. 
So they put a routine into the next software update and suddenly your phone starts calling home. Absolutely. You could absolutely do that in the software okay. update. I mean, when it comes right down to it, basically any interaction with the internet at the very least mm-hmm. has, I mean, what, the funny thing was even going all the way back to like the nineties. And I remember, you know, using the internet and this, people started having these discussions. Well, what do people know about you and whatever? It's like, well, you asked for something and it got sent to you. So they have to know where to send it. Right. Okay. So we do have anonymizers like, uh, well, you, in other words, you, uh, I can use a VPN or I can use, right? There are, there are ways I can encrypt right, my you, traffic. You have to be proactive about it is in a lot of circumstances, which is the tricky part, right? By default, most of the stuff that you're sending out there is generally not encrypted and, and less, less and l- like more stuff these days is now encrypted by default. Uh, but that is usually an above and beyond thing. And like how much of your information is encrypted depends on any number of things, including your hardware, your software, how you're connecting to the internet, like Wi-Fi versus your cellular signal, who your internet provider is, what services you're using. For example, fetching your mail or getting your Twitter feed or reloading a web page. All of those could potentially have different treatments in terms of how they're transmitted. So if we imagine, it's almost like we imagine a government that it's, it's hard to imagine a government voluntarily doing such a thing, but like an incredibly privacy-oriented government and the idea is that everyone in this scenario has given up the idea of convenience. So that's less important than okay. yeah. the privacy. And total security. Okay. So every, all communication would be encrypted. Now, what things are broken in the world we live in at the moment? Well, the, the trick with... Our, so here's the first problem with this. Encryption as we use it today it generally relies on what is, you know, kind of like an asymmetric encryption scheme. There is a private key and a public key. And the private key is something only you know, and the public key is something that you can give out. Uh, And essentially stuff encrypted using the public key can be decrypted using the private key and vice versa. And so that's, First of all, one of the biggest, you know, mathematically speaking like that, the way that that's done is one of the biggest impacts to technology in in our lifetimes most of us is this idea of asymmetric encryption right because previously if i wanted to send you a code i would have to write down my little code like i write down my message i would encode it using my cipher and then i would give you the message and nobody else could read it but the problem is how do i get you the key so that you can decrypt it with the (laughs) same thing and so now you've got a problem where it's like well, I can't, I could encrypt the key with another cipher, but then how do I get you the key to that cipher, right? Like it's a nesting doll problem. You know, there are, there are whole problem, like mathematical issues that come up around this in terms of key exchange. And so having this sort of asymmetric encryption really reinvented that, but the problem is still to a certain extent, you need to have, you need to have your keys like you need to have your keys. They need to be generated somewhere because these days they're used with essentially super large prime numbers are where encryption comes from. Mm-hmm. And you, so you you and I 
are not smart enough to be able to come up with a really big prime number <laughs> and make our own encryption keys. We need a computer to do that for us. So that starts with the first problem of like, well, you want to generate keys securely. How do you do that? And so some of that is like handled in the secure enclave because if you need a key, uh, it's got to be based on some information that is not easily accessible. And so it needs to be privatized. But then okay. your keys need to be stored somewhere that other people can't get at them. So now we're really talking about the heart of the secure enclave. It's like, I have keys. I need to keep them somewhere. And more to the point, you probably don't want to use the same key for everything. So you're, oh, okay. you have an assortment of keys used for, say, uh, your Dropbox account or your Google account or your email account. And so trying to figure out ways to store all of those keys uh, becomes trickier because some degree, somebody, somebody or something has to manage all of those. So in a truly private, secure enclave that we all lived in, we would have like dozens, if not hundreds of these giant numerical keys. Oh, but so, those are but those numbers are way too long to like keep in your head, right? Right. I mean, exactly. Not a password. Yeah. Basically impossible for you to memorize all of your encryption keys. So already we need to abstract away from that. And I think I feel you know what it comes down to is that the sharing it's the sharing of information between any two people or parts of an organization. That's where the privacy very quickly breaks down, right? For instance, they're able they're, they can just look at patterns now and right. figure out it's you if they wanted to so for instance the government you know knows if you're driving and you you know we have uh, easy pass and things like that and there is a camera that records your license plate okay mm -hmm. so that knows so what if you could say you know what if for the moment we accept that the idea is you don't want anyone else. That that has to remain its own box. Right. right. No one else gets to know that information. So Google, here's a question. Does Google go, Google kind of goes bankrupt, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, they, they would certainly have a hard time because if all of your behavior was encrypted, then you would have it would be much harder for them to track any sort of patterns exactly what you're saying like you know google establishes information based on you know your patterns uh patterns of behavior what you look at when you look at it what you've searched for and if all that was really encrypted like i mean for example if you even when you type something into google Google can see that, obviously, right? Because how else I are they going to tell you? How else are they going to tell you? But the question is, I guess, then, like, are they then logging that? They're then logging that information, essentially, and using it to build a more complicated model of who you are. Ah, I see you searched for cat toys at, you know, on this day at this time. So we can use that and then we can offer that information to other companies. Now, if you believe as a, like, as a matter of privacy, that your none of that information should be stored and none of that information should be transmitted to third parties. Then one of the problems that you start getting from that potentially is having having these you know things you search from become much dumber. 
ah, because they can't uh, okay. build yeah. these complicated models anymore. Therefore, they don't know, for example, ah, I am searching for cat toys and I want to buy them somewhere near me. I can't even, I, I necessarily have to like specify every time, like, all right, so I'm searching for cat toys near my home. And now you have just introduced a lot of work or things like, well, I have bought this brand of cat toy before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now that information would be abstracted away. So you sort of have to like, oh, what was that brand of cat toy that I bought, you know, okay. six months ago? Mm-hmm. I can't remember what the what the brand was. And now I have to basically go through the whole process of trying to find it again. Okay, so we don't get suggestions from Amazon anymore. No, I, I think that's that's that would probably be be locked down, and you would essentially not only do you not get suggestions from Amazon, but so much of the information that say Amazon, if you type in cat toys, Amazon has their whole complicated algorithm of what people you know people have bought these a lot, they're popular, etc. And if it can't figure that out then it essentially has to rely entirely on voluntary information given to it, like reviews, which are, while good, yeah. All right. are also tend to be very polarized because people <clears throat> either really love things or really hate things for the most yeah. part. Mm-hmm. So you reduce the usefulness of your, your search results in, in any number of various places. So I feel like if, if we take it to the extreme very quickly, we would say we roll things back to where they were in like the 1980s. Oh, right. I mean, I don't know yeah. how we survived, but yeah, you if yeah. you remove all the electronic stuff that we ha- well, yeah, before things were connected, in other words, we had computers, but they weren't online, they weren't talking to each other. But actually, you'd have to go back even before the BBS. <laughs> I couldn't call up the my, <laughs> use my dial in to the BBS, uh. The Vorpal Blade was the one I called into <laughs> <laughs> to, you know, chat with my friends in the chat room. So, yeah, we'd have to go all the way back. Now, is that at all? Well, let's just say that's the world we live in. We'd have to go, ev- the, the challenge is how much of this convenience, like within this scenario, how are we going to say, oh, I said we throw out convenience, but... Is this just a matter of speed? That is, things will take longer to get done now that they don't have our private information? I think that's part of it. I I think the convenience factor that we're sort of dancing around also comes down to... It comes down to trying to figure out sort of what things can be done for you. Like, there are probably more complicated tasks that would be a lot harder if the all the private information was firmly encrypted. I mean, and you can kind of look at an idea of what this would look like uh, based on the stuff that the European Union has actually done. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So you remember the GDPR stuff, which came out sort of last year, which was like, all right, we're going to really regulate what data of yours can be shared. And so now, every time you go to a website, that uses cookies, which are little pieces of information stored about you on the on your computer. You are get this little banner a lot of times. They're like, by the way, we are a website that uses cookies. You have to click this little button to make the banner go away and acknowledge that we're using that. So you also, I think, 
it's not just a matter of things taking longer, but it's a matter of inconvenience in terms of roadblocks that are put in your way because of this enclave around you know what you're what you're suddenly like all these challenges involves like ah oh, we now have to note this because we can't store this information without your consent which means now you need to consent to this now imagine that you need to consent to every single time like not just those blanket like ah, terms okay. that you're checking yeah. yeah but like every time you go in to give your information it's like all right you've got to you know agree that we can use this and think of the the hundreds if not thousand times a day that you might use a service or a feature or go to a website that requires some form of personal information stored or something like that. Like that would be a lot of, a lot of things to do with a lot of consent buttons to click, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Sure. Okay. And I can see that, that if you want to have some taste of this, if you turn off the ability to have, you know, in your browser, Mm, you can turn mm -hmm. off things, watch how things don't work anymore. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Even, You have to a you have to you do have to remember things like passwords and all that. Plus, all kinds of things just don't work as well as they used to. Here's another blanket sort of thing. I imagine, for instance, what what would be in this society is basically every interaction would be anonymized. Yes, and so that's hmm. possible. That works. Is that right? If everything were anonymous, like Google, for instance, actually says, oh, we anonymize it. We don't know. Right, right. Yeah, I think trying to think about what the what the ultimate impacts in that, because like certainly, you know, I certainly don't want to get into the uh, the mindset too much of saying that this like all oh, privacy is bad because clearly. It's right, not. right, right, right. Clearly, actually, we want to protect privacy. What I, can, I can clarify our what the if scenario actually is forget the thing about convenience specifically, but we can say. What is the idea? We have the ideal. We get all the benefits of modern technology as much as we can, but with everything being anonymized. Yes, I feel like that's that's the world we're trying to create. Um, yeah, yeah, and I think there's there's any number of benefits to that as well. Uh, but yeah, it, in terms of anonymizing all the information that goes sort of flows back and forth on the internet trying to think of uh, other cases like the uh, sort of the Google situation where you would end up with things that are less less desirable and and maybe the answer is privacy is actually really good for the most part but <laughs> <laughs> well health rec- you know searching for health things and stuff like it, here's what I would imagine that to get valuable information what what happens is where the being anonymized sort of would hurt things is that you yourself, you get better information. You get higher quality information if you, let's say it was just you or your own personal computer, could could, could know a, a whole lot of data about you, very specifically about you, and then use that and go out and, and get information based on all that stuff. So actually, here's, here's, here's one idea. I think that everyone will have to have a Google quality device in their house. You would have to have whatever Google has mm-hmm. by having it completely distributed all over the world. If you had one of those, you had if everyone had their own private Google. Right. Right. So you in work. your basement, in your basement yeah. you have a data farm That's right. that has That's right. 
That's right. <laughs> that has like 50 servers. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So does that mean everyone would have to have a gigantic server farm like Google does? Potentially. And, and, and presumably uh, everybody's would, would be hugely duplicative, right? Most. Right. Right. Yeah. Farms, so. Yeah, yeah, depending on how you want to handle that, because either you would need to, it's always a balance of trust. The question is either you need to trust that some company that is not you uh, is behaving in your best interests in the way that you would like them to behave, like in an ideal world, right? Like this company is totally treating all of my information exactly the way that I want it to be handled. Okay. And so if you're willing to accept that, right, like then you could in theory have like that information, say, managed on a remote cloud server where, you know, the keys are held securely in a secure enclave that only you have access to. But if you're not willing to make that leap, then, yeah, you would need to essentially have some sort of machine that it's almost like a proxy, I feel like, where it would be like, ah, this thing has my full authority and is sort of acts as though it's me and like has my like profile on it, but it's all under my control. And then, but like the problem with that is like, even at a certain point, how would you get that information to any other, any securely to anybody else? Like if Ah, at some point you need to trust an external service, because even if you built this simulacrum (laughs) of your behavior and your model what good is that unless it interfaces with some other system? Because you cannot feasibly, possibly recreate the entire internet in your house. You have an avatar that's out there that is a perfect, as you said, a perfect simulacrum of you, right? And it goes out into the world. And it's one of these guys that's like super shady. <laughs> like, you ever, go- <laughs> I lived in Los Angeles for a while. And I remember everyone in Los Angeles in, in the film world, a Hollywood world. When you talk to them, you go to a party or something, you start talking to people and you never get anything specific. You go, well, I'm working. How's things? What do you do? Well, I'm working with a guy. I can't really talk about him, but he's very big in the industry. <laughs> right. And it's all this sort of like, uh, you know, someone who's trying to hide something. Right. So you right. have all these avatars that are all doing that. And theoretically, the company also has a Google has its own if you know, as they exist in whatever form they do now, they have their own avatar. It's like Sergey or something. He's also like doesn't want to give away corporate secrets. So it's like a very nervous Christmas party at the office. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, okay. But but every single interaction online would now be like that, right? Right. Yeah, everybody, everybody constantly dancing around each other. Right. Like, can I trust this person to send them a cat? video right right very cagey everything would be very cagey very very like well okay do i really want to extend myself in this in this particular way do i want to give out any information about myself and as such yeah it feels it feels very isolating right like it feels very insulating and isolating like where you're now like well i've got all my i've got my little enclave mm-hmm. it's filled with all my personal information very secured and I don't want to give out, out to anybody. Like, is there a, is there a, it's trust. I think, I, I think I, I see what you're saying there, actually. What it is. So it's like this. It's like, instead of right now where it's pretty, e- even in this high tech age, it's pretty mechanical. I type in some information. It gets sent out to another computer. It does some 
sorting and whatever and sends me back some information. It would almost be like your the thing, let's call it your avatar, your the, sim, the simulacrum of you that goes out to get any information is just very, 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 very cautious. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, instead of simply, like if I go to a shopping site, let's say, um, does Zazzle still exist? Is that the shoe? No, Zappos. Zappos. Yes, I'm sure The shoes, right? They're still around. They're still mm-hmm. around. Yeah. So you go to Zappos, whatever. And in, instead of just the normal handshake you get when you first connect with them, it would, it's almost like your avatar would do a whole lot of research on the state of the security and the reputation of this thing. So it's almost like, you know, there are these certificates, for instance, right, that mm-hmm. th- that your computer checks and says, okay, well, this is Apple.inc. This right. for sure. Right. It's almost like we wouldn't trust those. We'd have to sort of rebuild. Right. Well, the, the, those are always super interesting to me. And that sort of comes into this because fundamentally there needs to be so like you said there's a certificate it's cryptographic so it is based on this sort of encryption asymmetric key setup okay we can verify who this is because there is a mathematical formula at the root of this that lets us prove that this is the matching part of the key but those certificates Mm -hmm. themselves need to be issued by somebody Right, like ah, there has to be a body that says, like, this is how the certificates work, and there's furthermore a sort of a web of of trust that says, like, okay, we have verified these, and so like if you trust us, the issuing authority, then you trust the certificates that we issue. And so the question is, that right now, that's how it works, and and we sort of shorthand it by saying like because I trust one of these dozen issuing authorities or whatever, and there used to be only one, like back in the 90s, I can I can verify that uh, this is authentic, this person is who they say they are, and this information can be see, like securely exchanged. But then the question becomes, well, what if I'm doing that on a one-by-one basis? That becomes very difficult, because if I want to exchange something with you, and you've got a certificate, how do I then verify that even though your certificate might be accurate. This is essentially like like a con man. Okay, <laughs> no, you have the key, <laughs> you have all the information, but how do I know at the end of the day that I'm talking to Philip as opposed to somebody who's just pretending to be Philip and has Philip's key or certificate? So authentication versus security like is a kind of an interesting fine line there too. So maybe it's like an independent... Tr- for instance, here's a story. I had a... a the night I met my wife, when she was not my wife, she was just somebody I who sat across the table from me at the Mexican restaurant at a friend's birthday party. And we started t- chatting. Apparently, I've learned much later, she went home and the next day went to work. And her friend said, oh, what did you do last night? Oh, I met this guy. And this other friend said, oh, what was he like? My wife, future wife, said, I don't know. <laughs> it was okay, I guess. And then this third party friend said, well, let's look at his Facebook page. Ah, <laughs> and yes. apparently I passed the test. Mm. So a trusted... So it, there's your trusted web. There's exactly. your, your authority okay. saying, okay, yeah. yep, this seems legit. We can establish that this is the right person. Right? Because like, what if they had gone to your Facebook page and it wasn't you? 
Like, what if it was they like, put in your name and they're like, well, this this is the name of the guy I talked to or something. It seems like him, but does, it's not actually it doesn't look like him, etc. Like, there's your there's your broken encryption. So I can imagine one of the things that would happen here is it would get exhausting to create to constantly maintain your own list of trusted people. Mm -hmm. So what you would probably do at some point is say, I'll just trust everybody that Philip trusts. Mm -hmm. Right. And then, you know, my students would say, well, I'll just trust everybody that Matt trusts. Would we then just end up with, I don't know, what we have little semi-public enclaves of trusted groups? Yeah, well, that's an interesting question, because then how far does that extend, right? Like, right. That, you get into, like, a Kevin Bacon issue there, right? Like, <laughs> where it's, I trust everybody Kevin Bacon. We all trust Kevin Bacon, that's all. <laughs> But yeah, like, because there is a question of how far does that web extend before all the webs connect? And then even more interesting to that is like, what if you're like one of the hundred people or something in the in the country, for example, that somehow doesn't connect with any of the webs? Like, what if there are there the do we do we end up with these like digital hermits kind of where it's Uh like, oh, well, they just (laughs) don't know anybody nobody trusts them because right. nobody can vouch for them. Yeah, so nobody gets in in the first place, right? Right. Or those right. hermits, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that's I mean, there's an, that's an interesting idea. Like, where are the, the people who get left out and, and are sort of pocketed off and their, their enclaves are not big enough to embrace other people's enclaves and thus they can't get anything done? Like, do they get sort of, you know... Are they become pariahs? Is that how this works? Yeah, I yeah, I, I think that. that's or maybe even we wouldn't even know those people existed. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> true. That would be a little creepy. <laughs> yeah, like you, you, you would hold up your phone, you know, your AR uh, augmented reality device to this person uh, you see, and there would be nothing there. Right, they'd be invisible. Yeah. Which may be good. Maybe that's what you want. If you're the, uh, if you want to be off the grid, this is the off the grid coming back around to that. It also seems like it would be really hard to get any business done or any like, how would you survive? <laughs> you know? That's right. Actually, I realized, you know, a couple of things. One, in, in this nightmare side of the scenario, it isn't that they would be invisible. Actually, your phone would like start sounding an alarm, you know. Right. They tell you, oh, this person Unknown. is not trusted. That's right. Yeah, you can't. It's like you've gone, when you go to a website where the, or you, you ever click through in Google and Google's like, by the way, we need to tell you this site, like we think there's something shady with this site. And a lot of times I've definitely yeah. seen that and had those sites be like perfectly normal site. Exactly. But, but, you know, Google, for whatever reason, has run its complicated algorithms and everything and can't establish that. You'd meet a person at a party and your a thing would flash up on your on your Google Glass or glasses or whatever and and say this is a suspicious, suspicious person. Be careful. We cannot verify the identity of this person. This person. Well, I mean, this kind of makes me think of China's public credit system, right? What's Ooh. it called exactly? Where they maintain sort of political reliability rankings mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. people based on their social media. Oh, really? When you meet somebody, you can. Imagine that you're in Beijing and you meet somebody for the first time and the government says, this person is not reliable, right? Do not let this person into your network. So then it isn't even a personal trust question anymore, Mm -hmm. uh, but you can imagine these state actors dictating who you get to trust or not, right? Yeah, that would be kind of like if somebody, if like immediately when you met somebody, it showed you like their credit score. 
precisely, <laughs> like, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, 400, you know, uh, you right. know I don't want to, yeah. I don't want to lend this guy 20 bucks, you know? <laughs> right here. Actually, okay, now I'm going to add another layer, layer of complexity and security on this. What that would mean is, so it's, it is like that. You see somebody and you, your avatar would be scanning all information about them. So, of course, the most personal and stuff. But their, whatever, their avatar who's giving out the information is going to be very... Ultimately, what's going to happen is I think these avatars are the things that need to be trusted. That's right. the, it, that avatar is a traveling, secure enclave. Your own personal firewall, sort of. Firewall gets overused, but it's kind of like you're, it is something that you're putting out there that insulates you and protects you from, from bad connections. It, I mean, it would be, everyone would be frustrated because this thing that's yours doesn't give up its inf- <laughs> So it's a little bit like basically someone goes out and does, imagine a scenario where somebody went out and investigated someone very thoroughly. And then came back and said, you can sort of trust them, but I'm not actually going to tell you the information. You just have to trust, yeah. right? I don't know That's if such a scenario would yeah. exist. Huh. Hard to come up with as an idea. That <laughs> uh, seems very unfamiliar. Yeah. That's, that's what it would be. It's a good point, though, because you, even beyond that, it's your avatars interacting with other avatars, right? So in your example of meeting your wife, what if you had both had avatars that that interacted with each other and decided for their own particular reasons because oh. they had run these things like, <laughs> no, nah, these two people probably shouldn't meet. And then you just never do, right? Like maybe, yeah. Yeah. So maybe, maybe it, there's certainly an argument there for the idea that, that maintaining absolute privacy, I mean, I mean, maintaining absolute privacy is certainly a problem, right? Like let's say in that same example that you go out and you have to have a conversation with somebody in which you reveal no private details about your life. Oh boy. Yeah, that's going to be how an exciting day. <laughs> right. How do you build any sort of personal relationship on this idea that I am not going to give you any personal details about myself? I was like, do you like cats? Eh, I can't say. And now they're like, they're just like cats. Like, how about dogs? Like, I mean, very quickly that becomes unfruitful. And it's just really hard to have any sort of exchange of ideas. You know, taken to the extreme, even, you know, we all have heard the old adage about like the things that you don't talk about, like, you know, politics, religion, me, you know, et cetera. And it's like, all of a sudden that list expands to pretty much everything. At what point, you know, basically you never get beyond small talk. Yeah. Meanwhile, the avatars are having a very heated discussion. <laughs> Those are behind the <laughs> they're scenes. just getting everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. But they're insulating you from it, so yeah. Yeah, I guess we become meat, that's all. Just like, it's like the Matrix or something. Mm -hmm. it, it is an interesting question of like, privacy is important, but you need to obviously have, like we've been talking about with the trust issue, like, you don't go and tell everybody your private details every moment of your life. Every single person you know you meet in the drugstore, or you don't tell them your life story. You decide at a certain point who do you trust and who do you want to let into that circle of trust. From a standpoint of privacy, absolute privacy is a thing that still needs to be... It is like that firewall. Yeah. The firewall insulates you from connections that are bad, 
but you have to tell it, oh, I'm going to let this through, I'm going to let this through, this site's okay, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Like you still need to have control over when you don't want to be private. So actually, I can see what would happen is basically we would still want to interact. So we would be doing what we do now. As you say, we'd be riding that balance between it. But we have this avatar, this you know all-powerful information searching device that's our own and that no one else, that even we can't get into, no one else that can get into it, but we, we sort of trust it. What it would do is it would just sort of whisper in your ear, like, you know, be careful. Baby, right. You know, this, this is a... I can't tell you what I've heard, but what I've heard is not you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's like those characters, like, was it the guy on the Game of Thrones who, my little birds told me. Yes, the whispers, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and that would be it. And you'd, you'd there'd be this independent... So ultimately what it comes down to is what this points to is that trust is the number one problem. And the question is, we want to be able to we, we want to be able to collect an enormous amount of data about ourselves, and then we want to use that, but we have to, I, guess, I suppose, just like it was back in the early days of money or something, we need a bank right, that you trust. Right. Some sort of arbiter that decides these are the this is this is the the way this is going to work, or this is how you should this is the rubric for figuring out who to trust or what to trust. And then the question is, is that decision made for you? Like yeah. in the case right. of, of your websites with your secure certificates, it's not like any of us went out and like verified like those people issuing the certificates, right? In the same way that we, you know, we might probably have even researched our bank more than we know about our people issuing our encryption certificates. Because yeah. we at least are like, all right, it's not like this bank has, you know, gone under or it's not one of those banks that's been accused of creating fake accounts for people, etc. Like, all right, I feel that I've done some research. But most people don't even know, like you trust, all you trust is that there's a little padlock on your on your web browser when you that's go right. to a site, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. And you're like, right. oh, this padlock <laughs> must be secure. Sometimes but, like, it's a turning GIF. It's like a, a, a the little lock turns. So that's, And you feel even better about it because you're like, oh, it's clearly locking. Like, yeah, exactly. That's, that's how this works. Exactly. Um, but yeah, but it's it, your trust has been given. Like it's been abstracted yet another layer away, right? Like mm-hmm. I trust the person who made my web browser. Well, yeah. I don't know anything about the people who made my web browser. I'm trusting the company <laughs> that employed the people who built the web browser that uses the certificates that are trusted <laughs> by... And like you have mm-hmm. a long chain of stuff and like there are a lot of assumptions built in there. And... Yeah. You hope that there are enough checksums to sort of keep it honest, but there could be failings at any number of those. You're you're only as good as your weakest link, right? I like it, and I should say, as a, uh, a historian, this is something that historians have spent some time thinking about: is how does trust as a concept evolve? Because mm-hmm. it's different societies have very different senses of what counts as trust or a trustworthy person. So I'll plug my friend Jeffrey Hosking's book. Trust a history. Huh? If you want to go see how these things play out, so Jeffrey was actually a uh, historian of the Soviet Union, and one of the things he noticed was the way in communist, in closed societies, how trust was deployed very differently. So, for instance, no one wanted ever wanted to fly on Soviet aircraft because they hmm. didn't trust them, and they didn't trust them because they didn't trust the they didn't trust the planes because they didn't trust the government to report when there were plane crashes. Whereas in the U.S., since plane crash crashes get reported, we 
trust that someone will do something about it. So we make very discrete decisions uh, in day-to-day life um, based on these same sorts of problems. Although I would say an image of our current situation in terms of this electronic privacy goes is all the companies have are having plane crashes constantly. You know, if if a, if a security yes, breach right. <laughs> is a plane crash, and we're all just like, yeah, really true. Somebody yeah. should fix that. I guess it is. Well, and it's. It's funny because it's a sliding scale of it's not just the trust, but it's the um, it's like the risk reward paradigm, right? Where it's like in all these cases, I'm also balancing like how bad is it? How bad is the risk? Well, if I'm in a plane crash, it's pretty bad. I probably don't have a yep. lot of things to worry about after yeah, that point. Right. But people keep thinking like, oh, well, you know, my password got broken. I can just change my password because we all change our passwords all the time. Yeah, but. What you don't think about, and for me, you know, and we started off talking about encryption and the importance of encryption, but like what we don't think about are things like, for me, the Equifax breach of a couple of years ago became the biggest deal because even though everyone was kind of like, well, security breaches, there are a dime a dozen, they happen all the time. The, not, the scope and the type of information revealed there are so damning, (laughs) so bad, that even though people sort of brushed it off because I think they're used to hearing about, they they don't understand magnitudes. It's an issue of, not my password to my website got broken into, it's, you know, all of my private data, as, as we've just been concerned about. And at that point, to a certain degree, it doesn't matter anymore what gets breached beyond that, because... All that information is already out there to somebody who can find it. You know, somebody has compromised 150 million uh, social security numbers or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's like, it doesn't matter if they got the password to your Facebook account, if they've got your social security number. Like, that's right. That's, that's, that's already the gold, yeah. right? That's, that is the thing that you should have protected. Right. So, in a way, our, uh, of course, our, I guess I realize our credit score is the closest thing we have to a reputation index, which is terrible because is that terrible. is not what you should be judged on. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. Well, as far as companies are concerned, I guess it's like right, right for them. Yeah, it's I mean, and, useful, but yeah. I, and and I, I will plug a book that I like uh, that kind of gets into this a little bit. There's a book by uh, Cory Doctorow, who's another science fiction author, well yeah. known, yeah. called "Down Down in the Magic Kingdom," uh, which is oh. about people working at Disney World. But in that in that sort of like near future ish thing, there's a thing called oh, I'm going to totally blow it now because I haven't read this book in many years. But I think it's called Wiffy which essentially is the same thing. It's like your, it's your, sorry, Woofie, W-H-U-F-F-I-E. It's your reputation-based currency, which essentially like everybody can see each other's scores and like you kind of have this thing that you can spend as currency that is based entirely on your reputation. And then you've seen, you know, sort of impacts with that on things like, you know, Reddit, for example, being a, a community that is based largely on people's reputation scores and how much you participate and whether you're a good actor when that is within that community although even that itself can be skewed and treated in ways that are kind of problematic interesting who reputes the reputation reputators who reputes the reputators (laughs) (laughs) yep yep Uh, that is that's the fair question all the time because you know then you get into whole conversations about 
privilege and 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 where you fall in like the traditional way that society has treated you because of your gender, your race, your creed, right? Like all of those things play into that and they can they can come out against you if you are in a a a group that has traditionally been mistreated or devalued in society. So mm-hmm. Yeah. Even though people maintain the like ultimate, oh yes, it's perfectly reliable because a computer is doing all of it and computers are impartial. Computers, computers get programmed by people. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. This is just speaking of, I guess, of, of trust. Like you mentioned, that concept of trust. I can, you can see how basically, with some new system, when a whole new system comes around, like let's say there, before there was banking, and then there became systematized global banking, and then now we have the internet and whatever that. Each time that happens, this uh, divide in society happens. And you can see how very quickly, like you're talking about the people who had a bad reputation. Well, then what about their kids? Right. And their kids, they don't ever get into the system. And that's how you, and that is basically what's happened in modern society. You know, you get these divides. Right, right. I mean, yeah, all of those trust problems become issues because, you know, I'm sure human psychology enters into that to a huge degree where it's like, I am more likely to trust people who look like me or sound like me or have a similar background to me. Yeah. So how does that impact my, you know, my privacy choices, right? Like in this future where everything is private and you're making decisions based on, I'm trying to think, like, would you even interact with somebody in a face-to-face manner or is that too much private? Is that too much information? Is it like too much information to see what this other person looks like? Because yeah. then you'll be making judgments based on their private, <laughs> on, on, on their appearance, right? Like, right. Is your avatar literally like an avatar that is that is kind of, you know, when you sign up for a new website and they give you like a generic icon? Is it like a yeah, generic icon right. for everybody? That's right. Are we all eggs? Like, yeah. yeah. But then you don't trust those the most. Right. Exactly. So it backfires. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> so I think I think uh, here I'll, I'll wrap this up by saying I think that you'll be able to tune your avatar. To say this is how these are these are the values that are important to me, so which is what we kind of do anyway. Right, but it would have that ability to go out and do basically. It would constantly be gathering. In some ways, it it could it would be better theoretically because it would be going off a lot more information constantly than just one thing. Like, oh, that's your credit score. It would look at all kinds of information and really get to know. Although there would be there would be downsides about that too because if if your avatar goes out there and realizes, ah, let's say people with blonde hair are treated much better, all of your avatars now have blonde hair because they feel that they will be treated better. Ah, yep. yeah. Uh, yeah. And then everybody's back to having the same avatar. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yep. Because it's all, everyone will be very symmetrical, very good looking, very blonde. I don't know, blonde, but like, you know, everyone will be very attractive. It sounds great. Sounds, yeah. sounds like, I won't I be in that world. Yeah. But. <laughs> well, Dan, thank you. Thank you for this. This is this was a real mind bender. Yeah, it was an interesting one. <laughs> That's a good one. That's a good I feel one. like we only scratched the surface, but I appreciate uh, having a chance to let the uh, let that what if run wild. <laughs> yeah, good. exactly. Exactly. That, no? It's the safety of the safety of the what if. Now we can reel it all back. Come back <laughs> to Earth. <sighs> Your information is already completely unsafe. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even worry about it anymore. Don't worry about it. It's like a Zen attitude. So, in gratitude for all you, uh, the journey you've taken us on, Dan, you are going to receive a finger puppet. 
of a great scientist or science fiction character from the Unemployed Philosophers Guild. You probably know who they are, actually. They, their gifts are sort of all over in, like, museums and, and uh, every, gift shops everywhere. Philosophersguild.com. They make, this is some friends of mine work there. It's, uh, they make smart, funny gifts for smart, funny people. Cool. Ah, well, that's nice, nice. to be included. Um, and nice Dan, do you want to do you want to plug your book once more? I would love to. My most recent book is The Bayern Agenda, which is available in fine bookstores everywhere. You can get it online if you want Amazon or Apple Books, but you can also walk into your bookstore of choice. And if they don't have it, which would be a shame, they can probably order it for you. Right on, right on. Yes, and I highly recommend it. Dan, you are also receiving a gift from our newest gifter. I'm a wash. What the gift? Thomas uh, Thomas Romer uh, is this artist who runs uh, the Chop Shop Store. You can go to chopshopstore.com. And he makes many, 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 many beautiful science and space-related things. But for you, we have... Uh, he has this beautiful series called the Historic Robotic Spacecraft Series. Beautiful 1930s-ish... Mo- or maybe more mid-century modern style posters celebrating uh, Sputnik, Lightsail, which is a planetary society craft coming up, the Galileo, which went to Jupiter, Rosetta, which went to an asteroid, New Horizons, which went to Pluto, and Voyager, and the Mars robots, and Cassini, all these different things. They're beautiful. So you're going to get one of those. Well, thank you. For our audience, if you don't want to wait until we get you on the show, because I would like to have you on the show, whoever you are. I'd love to have you all on the show. But you can still take advantage of these fun things at philosophersguild.com. You can get 10% off with the coupon code WTIF. You can buy anything, not just finger puppets. WTIF. And as well on Chop Shop Store, Thomas Romer's amazing site, you can get 15% off. WTIF is the coupon code. All kinds of good stuff. Wow. Stuff for your walls and fingers. If you haven't already subscribed to our podcast so that it shows up automatically each week, you can do that on our website, whattheif.com, where you can also listen to all our other episodes and learn more about us. You can contact us there right on the website. Just click contact or you can email us at feedback at whattheif.com. And many of those are entertaining and wind up in the mailbag. So if you want to be in the mailbag, let us know and I'll put you in. And you can follow us on Twitter at what the if show. I think that's all the different ways you your avatar can find us. <laughs> Although your avatar is probably, you know, learn some other ways that they can find us, but hopefully won't tell you about that. The Bayern Agenda on uh, Amazon and in bookstores everywhere. Dan, uh, what are you working on now? I am actually working on a follow-up to the Bayern Agenda. I think I can say that. Awesome. Uh, and... Uh, yeah, we'll see. I don't have a, a date or anything to release for that right now, but I'm working on that, and I'm working on another book that is more of a fantasy set in the present day, which I'm very excited about, set in my hometown of Boston. Huh. And yeah, so uh, those are... I've always got a few irons in the fire, uh, besides all the other things that I do <laughs> every day, yep. just to keep myself alive. <laughs> right on, right on. 
And Matt, you have your book is coming out in May. Uh, in May. Yeah. Well, more, more deets as they approach. All right. Mm-hmm. Einstein's War. Yep. Mm. Very good. Very exciting. Well, gentlemen and listeners all over the world and avatars and ships at sea, thank you for listening to another incredible episode. And now, Dan, I, I don't know if you've heard the ends of any of our episodes or heard our episodes before. We do a very special thing where we will shout the name of the show because when we ponder whatever adventure may come next week, we have no idea what it will be. But as soon as it comes and the avatar of it comes in front of us, we are going to scream, (laughs) What the (laughs) (laughs) 